Hello, my beautiful Women Inc. listeners. My guest this week is Catherine Minshew. She is the CEO and co-founder of The Muse. If you don't know The Muse, it is an absolutely incredible platform that is helping connect you with the job of your dreams. As the CEO and co-founder of The Muse, Catherine also co-authored the book, The New Rules of Work, The Modern Playbook to Navigating Your Career. Catherine has spoken at MIT and Harvard, appeared on the Today Show and CNN, and contributes on career and entrepreneurship to the Wall Street Journal and Harvard Business Review. She has also been named to Smart CEO's Future 50 Visionary CEOs, Forbes 30 Under 30, and Inc's 35 Under 35. Her startup, The Muse, a value-based job search and career advice site, has been named one of Fast Company's most innovative companies. Before founding The Muse, Catherine worked on vaccines in Rwanda in Malawi with the Clinton Health Access Initiative and was previously at McKinsey. I loved this conversation. Catherine is just so full of life. She is full of advice. I truly feel like this is the question that I am asked most is just what do I want to do with my life? I don't know what I want to do. I don't know the best way to go about it. And I feel like Catherine provides such tangible advice when you are looking for the next step in your career or maybe even the first step. I think this episode is just filled with so many bits of wisdom and I know that you're going to absolutely love it. Now, let's get on over to my conversation with Catherine. Welcome to the Woman Inc. podcast. This is the place for the new generation of women looking to lead the life of their absolute dreams. I'm your host, Jenna Toddy, entrepreneur, life coach, and strategist for modern businesswomen and entrepreneurs. I am a city girl, sriracha lover, and that friend who will hype you up when you forget how powerful you truly are. I am on a mission to make Women Inc. the most powerful network of women who are leveling up, owning what they want, and becoming who they've always wanted to be. Have you ever wondered what it would look like if you went all in on yourself? No turning back. If so, you are in the right place, my girl. Let's get started. Catherine, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I'm so happy to meet you. Thank you. I'm really excited to be here. Okay, so we just broke down apartments, New York. We kind of like Friday evening right now, so... We'll just jump right into it. I'm obsessed with the muse. I feel like it's such a good fit for our audience. I'm sure that you already have some like-minded listeners slash subscribers. So I am excited to dive into it. But first, before starting the muse, can you walk us through what you were doing prior? Yeah. So let's see. So when I was little, I decided, uh, probably age 13, so I guess not that little, I decided that for a career, I wanted to be either a ambassador with the State Department or a CIA agent. <laughs> and I had such certainty for like a teenager. And um, I think it was partially because my family had moved to the Washington DC area from Texas when I was about 12. I was obsessed with that television show, Alias. If you ever saw it, Jennifer Garner played this, you know, totally badass secret agent. And so, yeah, I just decided like, that's gonna be my job. And luckily, Uh, Fast forward to when I was about 22 in 2007, I had the chance to work at a U.S. embassy in Nicosia, Cyprus. And I realized like 
I don't actually think that my idea in my head of this job is the same as the reality. And it was such a, it was a very pivotal, you know, experience in my early career because it got me fascinated by, you know, how do people decide what they want to do with their lives? And how do you know if a job is going to be a good fit or not? Um, do you have to like actually literally go do it, like move to Cyprus and work for the State Department to realize it's not actually the, the you know, the dream you thought it would be? And so anyway, I ended up at a couple of other jobs. I moved back to New York City and I worked as a management consultant for McKinsey for a couple of years. I had one other international stint where I moved to Kigali, Rwanda and um, helped roll out a new vaccine. Um, and I, you know, the whole time, I think I was just really fascinated by this question of like, am I going to find something that I like uh, doing enough to do it for, you know, a decade, much less the rest of my life? And um yeah, I mean, thank goodness I found my way into entrepreneurship uh, with with the Muse because it was sort of the answer to that question that had not haunted me, but you know, it, I think as someone that loves to run towards a goal, um, it was it was really confusing and it was really frustrating when I was younger and I kept kind of moving in the direction of a career and then realizing like, oh shit, this isn't what I want to do at all. Completely. I feel like it's the most daunting question of anyone's young life of just like, what am I going to do with my life and my job? Yeah, it is, right? Because, you know, the things we learn in school, reading, writing, history, math, you know, they, they don't necessarily have direct corollaries to jobs in the real world. I think most people learn about careers from television, from their parents, but that's inevitably a really limited slice of what's out there. And yet, when you look at how many hours a week we spend with our jobs, I mean, it's more than we spend with our partners, with our pets, with our friends, with our kids. Like, work is such a core part of uh, your life and of your waking hours. And I think the difference between someone who is in a job and in a career path that they that they enjoy, that they drive meaning from, um, and someone who feels disrespected or who feels stuck, like it it's meaningful and it shows up your happiness or lack thereof in so many other areas of your life. But it's also not an easy problem to solve. And I think society, you know, we do ourselves a disservice by pretending like, oh, if you just get paid a lot, you'll be happy. Or if you work for a company that's on some prestigious list, best companies to work for, like check the box, you know, you'll be happy. And it, it turns out like it doesn't actually work like that at all. <laughs> completely. And I think it's such a different, everywhere can be a completely different fit to for the next person. Like the corporate world might be so good for one person and the other it's like startup is the only thing that can make them happy. And discovering that is a long process. It really is. And, you know, I think part of it is that um, we all have no problem knowing that in something as complex and human as dating, uh, different people like different things. Some people might want, you know, the adventurous traveler who sleeps in a tent. Someone else might want, you know, the really kind of bookish intellectual who reads 19th century poetry. And I think we all understand that there are a lot of different people in the world and that part of finding a good match is knowing yourself, knowing what you want out of life, and then finding someone who has some of those shared values or traits and obviously who treats you well. And yet we go into the workplace and career 
And instead of applying that same philosophy that employers and organizations and teams have personalities and you need to kind of find the right fit, I think historically people have just been like, oh, you're a marketer? Cool. Here's 7,000 marketing jobs. Just pick one, you know, and or pick one that pays the most. But in reality, just like um, I wouldn't say that marrying for money is typically a great strategy for happiness, a lot of people find that, you know, when they really get smarter about what they care about in their career and then they take, you know, steps to move towards more of the things that matter or less of the things they don't want, um, that that's actually a much, much clearer path to career satisfaction. Um, And yet I think, you know, I think a lot of our tools and technologies have actually been steering us in the wrong direction or standing in our way. And, you know, we're kind of getting around why I ended up starting the Muse, but it's such a, it's such a, it's a hard problem to solve, but I also don't think it's as hard as we've made it out to be as a society. We've just built tools that prioritize things like compensation or for a job seeker, here, I'm gonna give you 10,000 options versus building tools that are about helping people and organizations find the right fit. Okay, I can't wait. I have so many questions on the like advice career side, but first I want to dive into, so you have this idea, you want to start the Muse. What are some of the steps that you took to begin starting the Muse? Like, what type of first level decisions did you make when deciding that this was the company you were going to start? Yeah, you know, I took small steps before I made a big leap. I started thinking about this idea in 2010 because I was in my mid-20s and I wasn't sure what I wanted to do professionally, but I knew that it didn't feel like there were a lot of great places to go to get insight into different career paths. And so I ended up starting a blog with a couple of my female friends and colleagues who were also working at or ex-McKinsey. And we would go and find interesting women that were a few years older than us and we would just interview them you know, what's your career like? What do you enjoy about it? What don't you enjoy? What sort of people might be successful in this career path, you know, versus what sort of people might be frustrated and unhappy in this career path and why? And we were trying to, you know, get this information and content out to a wider audience that we also ourselves wanted. And so, you know, it started as a side project. Uh, we had a WordPress blog that I think we, you know, we bought a template for like $120. <laughs> and uh, yeah, we were just publishing these interviews and this kind of very simple content. And um, I started to spread the word. I started to reach out to college and alumni groups. At the time, again, it was mostly women you know, interested in hearing the stories of other women. And all of a sudden over, not all of a sudden, but over the period of a few months, you know, we went from having 4,000 people a month coming to this WordPress blog, then it was 10,000 people a month. And as it started to cross 10,000 and grow, that's when I think I first realized like this, this could be a real business. And frankly, I had a, a, a minute, a hot minute where I thought, you know, should we just put ads on the site? But at the same point, I had been interviewing and looking at all these different job boards, trying to think about leaving my current full-time job and what I might want to do next. And it was such a bad experience. And one day it was almost like this light bulb went off and I said, well, wait a second. What if I actually used the idea of this career advice and content and guidance and paired it with an inside look into companies, but instead of you know monetizing through ads, 
I actually allowed employers to be part of the site and to really give people kind of a peek behind the curtain into what it's like to work there. And um, from my perspective, that would actually also benefit employers because, you know, I'm a big believer, just like people say, don't put a photo of yourself on a dating app that doesn't look like you, you'll just have a bunch of disappointing first dates. I felt like a lot of employers were doing that. They were putting this this view of themselves online that was not accurate. And it just meant that people would come into interview um, and then feel frustrated or feel misled. Um, or frankly, worst case, they would join the company, then realize that it wasn't true and leave. And so I thought, well, if we can get companies to be more authentic, we can do a great service to job seekers who will have more information to make better career decisions. And then on top of that, the hires that companies are making will be higher quality, more engaged, um, and ideally better retained. Um, and it turned out that thesis has proven true. So, you know, the, the very early steps, though, were just quitting my job, uh, designing the very first version of the Muses website, which was, uh, frankly, another WordPress template. Um, and my co-founder, Alex, and I, you know, we went looking for, like, our first companies to feature on the site. And in the meantime, we published a lot of really, you know, great career advice and career resources so that we could bring in an audience of people. You know, it was kind of our way of getting around the chicken and the egg problem. Yes. So the great resignation, we all know, like more people have quit their jobs, I think, in the last six months than like ever before, as far as ratio of of time. So what do you think is leading to that? Like, what are people just waking up and demand more? Like, from your perspective, what's happening there? Yeah, I think there are a couple different trends kind of all at play. One is that COVID made people realize that life is actually really short, right? We were all sort of faced with the fact that the world as we knew it could be over tomorrow. And I think it it lowered people's tolerance for bad jobs or disrespectful bosses. And it made people say, hey, if the world could change tomorrow, maybe I should actually just like <laughs> live the life that I want to live now. So I think it, it drove a lot of change in that perspective. You know, I think secondly, every generation uh, changes the rules of the workplace to some extent. And one thing that I think has been fascinating is um, Gen Z has said no to the idea that if you start a new job, you have to stay for two years. And I think this is actually, again, I think it's actually a pretty good thing. Um, when I first started working, I remember very clearly being told that if I left a job in under 18 to 24 months, like that was it. It was a black mark on my resume. You know, I might not get another job. And so there was this sense that like, once you commit, you have to stick it out. And, you know, frankly, now the Muse just did a survey and uh, 80% of people under 40 said that um, it's totally acceptable to leave a job in under six months if it's not as advertised. And I think this is forcing companies to be more honest because again, workers are saying, hey, you told me one thing, I showed up and got another and I don't need to stay. And so I think that, um, you know, when norms break down, it allows more and more people to, 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 to make that choice because some of the people that might have stuck it out previously um, because they felt like if they didn't, they would be penalized. Now they have more freedom. Um, so I think, you know, those are only two examples, but we are seeing a lot of, we're, yeah, we're seeing a lot of change in the workforce. And um, I think it's actually, my, my vote is it's a really good thing, even though it's hard for a lot of companies because it's going to force companies to up their game to actually keep people. Yes. 
I love how you compared it to dating. When I interview people, so I'm the president of an e-commerce company, and when I interview people, I'm like so honest. And at some points, I'm like, I promise, I'm not trying to convince you not to work here. I'm just making sure you understand like everything that comes with that, you know. And people seem very relieved by that. <laughs> it's really funny. Yeah, it's such a great, you know, it's it's a sign of respect, frankly, to say, hey, you are an adult who gets to make your own choices. So I'm just going to tell you, here are things that are great about working here. Here are things that can be challenging because, you know, the thing is, no company is perfect. No relationship is perfect. But when people feel like they are given some measure of transparency and they're proactively choosing to opt into a situation, they'll put up with the hard stuff because they get that it's part of it versus when people feel misled or, you know, like they don't, like they didn't know what were the challenges of a job before saying yes. I think that's where you're actually much more at risk as a company or as an employer. Um, and I, I, you know, I just, I really, really have been encouraging businesses to move in this direction, but it's also hard, right? You have a lot of leaders and a lot of CEOs who are uncomfortable with anyone saying anything that could be construed as negative. And it ends up, you know, I think incentivizing a lot of recruiters and a lot of people to paint an overly rosy picture of things. Completely. So seeing all of the questions I'm sure that come in and like choosing what you are focusing on from the advice side, what is something that you just really wish more young people knew when choosing their career? You know, this might sound simple, but I wish more people listened to what they truly want versus gravitating towards industries, companies, or roles that they think will make them look prestigious in other people's eyes. I think it's very easy when you're uncertain of the direction you want to go in to just default to, well, my parents said this is a good job or, you know, so-and-so media outlet published a list of great companies to work for and I guess I'll just go somewhere on it. I think that uh, when people are more honest with themselves about what truly matters, they end up having more satisfying careers. And by the way, you know, that can be as simple as something you said earlier that I think is so true. Some people want a fast-paced environment where they have to figure things out for themselves, like go, go, go. And other people want stability, consistency, predictability. You know, not every company is going to train you on how to do things. Some are going to throw you in the deep end. Some people want the training. Some people want to be thrown in the deep end. I think that we've gotten so obsessed with this idea that, you know, a company can be like a one-star company or a five-star company without actually asking what do I want? And what's the work environment that's going to suit my preferences and my personality? Um, And so I think the more that people can look at their career as something that they should personalize and, and architect to their own needs and values and desires, I think the more likely they are to be excellent at what they do and to be fulfilled by it. Makes complete sense, but absolutely not how we are trained, I think, as society. So on the company side, What is something that you think is one going to start being way more important for companies to adapt and start like changing their company culture to meet this new demand? And two, just something that you're seeing as a trend of like a lot of employees want work from home or they want company retreats. 
Is there anything like that that companies should start thinking about um, when thinking of company culture? Yeah, we're definitely seeing a strong convergence on a desire for hybrid workplaces. And for some people, that means I want to be remote 90% of the time, but come together with my colleagues once a year. And for other people, which is almost more classically remote, but I do think a lot of people want that, you know, that that in-person interaction at times. Um, We're also seeing a lot of individuals ask for monthly get togethers or, you know, I've even heard of companies that are doing kind of different things at different times of the year. So perhaps in the dead of winter and the heat of summer, they're more remote, but in the spring and the fall, they bring people together a bit more frequently. So, you know, it's really fascinating how quickly all of the norms around working in person, working remotely, working hybrid are changing. And um, interestingly, what we see is, you know, about 40 to 50% of people are prioritizing this kind of hybrid approach. Um, And then there's a huge chunk, I think it's like 35% that prefers remote. And then the balance wants to be mostly in person. But even for people that that want hybrid or remote, there is still this desire to have at least some interactions um, and and some kind of context outside of work. So that's been a really interesting vertical. Um, We're also seeing, you know, as the the war for talent has been very fierce, we're seeing companies offer like new and different benefits. There's a lot of job seeker interest in those. Like companies are offering fertility benefits. They are talking about, you know, giving people stipends for travel or learning or professional growth. We're also seeing a lot of um, people, especially young people, that want to work for businesses that take positions on issues that they believe in. So, you know, in the aftermath of the leaked Supreme Court opinion on Roe v. Wade, we had a lot of job seekers coming and saying, hey, what are companies doing about this? And, you know, could I use that as a search vector? I want to work for a company that takes a stand. We had a lot of employers coming to us and saying, hey, how can we support our employees who live in states that may be more affected? And so, you know, already on the Muse, we have the ability for people to search for jobs, buy fertility benefits, buy, you know, paternity or maternity leave, tuition reimbursement. You can search for a job at a veteran-founded company or a female-founded or led company or a bunch of other things. But we're getting a lot of interest for, you know, can you get companies' policies on specific issues? Can you get companies like specific work remote versus from the office versus hybrid schedules? And I think all of that is coming into play. And again, it's it's not so much that everyone's coalescing around wanting one thing, but more that people are getting clearer about what matters to them. And then they're going and saying, well, I don't want to work for a company that doesn't meet these needs. And that is just, I mean, it's upending <laughs> the workplace as we know it. Uh, but again, I, you know, I'm a fan of people getting more of what they want and need. And I think in so many other areas of life, we've already personalized things, right? If you and I go onto Netflix, we might not be recommended the same things. Online shopping, like there's so much variety. You get reviews of different products. Like you can see it from 17 different angles. Why do we pretend that people should make one of the most consequential decisions of their lives using these like very transactional tools that in many cases were built, you know, 15 years ago, really kind of trying to just like make the match as cheaply as possible versus make it right. Yeah, it feels like people waking up to their worth too, which I love it. I think it's amazing and it is so much more detailed. You should just be like, find a job that you got your major in and it makes enough money and you're good. Like suffer through it until you're 50 and you retire. 
I, I love that, by the way, waking up to your worth. It's so true because so many people are saying, wait, my time, my hours, my energy, um, myself has value. And again, I think we're seeing this gravitation towards employers and organizations that treat their people with respect and, you know, companies that may have gotten away in the past with treating people like a number or a commodity or a resource, uh, I think you're going to really, really struggle in this new era of work. Yes, completely agree. So you are constantly on TV segments. I see you posting like Today Show CNN, which is amazing. I thought this would just be an, like a valuable thing to touch on quickly. I feel like that's a lot of people's biggest fear, right? It's like being speaking in front of other people for that being on camera is like a whole nother thing. What types of tips have you or do you have for like cultivating that confidence to be able to speak on camera, to speak in front of people that you've just gotten better at in your career? Yeah. So I have a lot of different things that have helped me and and that uh, other people have found helpful. And there, there, it's a real grab bag of tips. So I'll give you a few different ones. You know, one is that at the end of the day, like public speaking is not death, right? I have bombed a talk. I have forgotten what I wanted to say. Most of the times you are paying more attention to yourself than anyone else's. And I think, you know, it can be helpful to recognize that yes, this can feel terrifying, but the consequences most of the time are actually pretty light, especially in many contexts, uh, both frankly panels where other panelists want you to succeed, the moderator wants you to succeed, the audience wants to be entertained. So most of the time, you know, you can put yourself in context, especially when you're getting more comfortable, that limit the downside. Even on national television, I mean, I have been asked questions that I had no idea how to answer. It turns out that if you smile, if you kind of start talking about something that is related to the question, um, the worst case scenario has happened to me and you don't die, right? Um, So I think that's one thing that's just really helpful to keep in mind. Secondly, I actually think improv, I'm not the first person, of course, to suggest this, but forcing yourself to try improv comedy is a great way to practice. Again, similarly, weird stuff happens on stage and improv, but nobody dies. It's kind of embarrassing, but also like whatever, right? You know, every human has been embarrassed. And so I think practicing and putting yourself in those lower stakes situations can help prep you and can also help you sort of develop that internal, almost muscle memory for, you know, what happens when something's unexpected and just lets you roll with it. And then finally, and this is probably my most practical tip, but um, the first time I ever went on television, I was so I was so scared. And someone gave me a piece of advice that really stuck with me. And uh, I, I hope this le- this lands with some people. But their advice to me was, you know that feeling when you're in a crowded bar or a party, and you see someone that you think's really cute, and they're kind of looking at you, and you're kind of looking at them, and you know they're watching you, and you're talking to a good friend, but you're just a little sparklier. They're like. You're talking to your friend, but you know that this cute person is watching. And so you're just like a little funnier, a little sparklier. You're just a tiny bit turned up, even though you're pretending you don't know that they're staring at you, but they are. And so you're giving 110% socially, kind of being aware of their eyes. 
That is the best advice I have ever gotten for being on TV. Because when you're on TV, you're trying to pretend like you're just talking to the host, no big deal, but also you know the cameras are on you. And so for me, putting myself in that mindset of, cool, I'm just basically flirting with the camera <laughs> while pretending not to pay attention. It, I don't know, I mean, it really helped me. I found that advice, like at, at a minimum, I hope people get a kick out of it. Uh, but it, I actually do think it holds true because you know, it's just that it's it's you, but it's just like 10% dialed up in a way that um, I think, you know, people in the audience are watching at home or watching from an audience, you know, they, they find, uh, they tend to find compelling. And at the end of the day, you know, also if you do make a mistake, which it happens, again, I've done it a number of times, like most people watching have been in that experience. So I think it's okay to be like, whoops, sorry, that didn't come out right. Let me rephrase. Or, you know what? I lost my train of thought, but another important point I wanted to make is X. Um, so I always kind of write ahead of time just a few things I want to get across. So A, I can make sure to say them, and B, if I do get a little bit, you know, tripped up by a question or, or surprised by something, I can kind of go back to one of those three or four things that, um, that I really wanted to communicate. That's such good advice. I love, love, love that. It's so true, too. I think one time I recorded an online course and I had a, a part where I was practicing in between and I was like completely talking to myself, like going through, like looking to making hand motions. And I'm like trying to think of how I wanted to say it. And I, it was all still running. And I accidentally uploaded that to my course and I had no idea. I didn't edit it out. And this girl who bought it was like, my favorite part was seeing you behind the scenes. And I was like, what are you talking about? And then I realized I never ended up like mortified. Um, but I do think, yeah, I think it's a process of getting better. You learn as you go. But that is like the biggest fear ever for so many people. Really? Yeah, it is. And, you know, our brains process a fear of public speaking or a fear of ridicule the same way that you process a fear of a predator. Um, so I think having that second voice that's just like, the only way to get better is to do it. You're not gonna die. You know what? If we really embarrass ourselves, well, we'll go out and have an extra glass of wine tonight <laughs> and we'll laugh about it. It's gonna be a great story in the future when I get better at this. Like, you know, it's just, um, I don't know. I think people also, they appreciate the relatability of someone who doesn't get it perfectly or, you know, maybe, in the future, you're great, but you use those times when you were scared and where you messed up to kind of help somebody later on realize that we don't just show up being perfect at public speaking. Like, that's just not how it works. It is a combination of, of practice and also sometimes just like going for it, even if you feel like uh, the world might fall down around you. Yes, and it really does feel that way. The fact that you had to say you are not dying is very telling because <laughs> it absolutely feels like that sometimes. Oh, yeah. I mean, by the way, I felt like my heart might stop. I felt like my, you know, I just, I've been like, I can't do this. Yeah. Like the, this is the end yeah. and it's not, but your brain really thinks it is. And it's very convincing. Completely. My thought is always, why did you say yes to this? Who did you think you were when you said that you could do this? And then of course you always can do it. Okay, Catherine, this has been exactly. amazing. My last question for you is what would be your number one piece of advice for a woman who is wanting to start her own business? Mm. My number one piece of advice would be to find your community. Um, I think that starting a business is very hard for everyone. And frankly, I think it's 
often harder for women, but also deeply, deeply enriching and valuable and I think can teach you so much about yourself. But I would strongly encourage anyone out there to start to put together kind of your community, your support group. And by the way, that can be a combination of people you follow, who inspire you, media you consume that gives you tips, but also ideally, you know, other founders in the trenches. And, you know, it's valuable for so many reasons, but one of them is when things happen to you as an entrepreneur, it can often feel like I'm not good enough. I, if I was just better at pitching, I would have been able to close that deal or raise that money. If I was just a better entrepreneur, things would be easy. The fact is they're just not easy most of the time, but it can be helpful to have, you know, other people, especially other women who are in the trenches where you can look at them and say, she's a total badass. She's working her ass off. And yes, it takes time. It's hard. It doesn't always go right. But like sometimes it's easier to cheer people on and to to understand the challenge and sort of be supportive anyway to someone else. And then, you know, they can turn around and do that for you. And you can also look at yourself and be like, why am I being so hard on myself? I would never, you know, I wouldn't do this to someone else. And so, you know, you can also share tips, you can share advice. So I would say like, gotta build your community because even for the founders that are successful, it is often incredibly hard. And I think culturally, we often strip some of the hardest stuff um, out of the narrative because everybody loves a winner. And there are a lot of rewards in our society for entrepreneurs who go out in public and say, oh yeah, I had this brilliant idea boom, started this business, you know, and and look at how successful I am. Um, There's not as many rewards for people who are like, yeah, then I fell flat on my face and I thought I had lost everything and I made a decision that wasn't the right one and I had to, you know, untangle the mess that I caused. But that's true of almost every person I know. Um, And I know a lot of wildly successful entrepreneurs it's just, it's not always easy to talk about it. And so, you know, I try and do what I can to talk about it, but I also think that sometimes you just get that insight from really truly knowing someone um, and, uh, you know, and, and having them share things with you that they might not say on a podcast or on a national television interview, but that are so, so valuable to your journey and, um, you know, and, and hopefully to theirs as well. Brilliant, brilliant advice. I love that. I think that should be our little clip. That was really, really good. <laughs> Catherine, thank you so much. It was so nice to meet you. I think this is going to be so helpful for our community. Amazing. Well, thank you. I loved meeting you as well. Please um, send me the link. I can't wait to promote it. And um, when you come back to New York, let me know. We'll have to get a drink. I know. I would love that. Let's absolutely do that. Okay. I hope you enjoyed this episode and are feeling so fired up to go out there and create that business or side hustle that's been on your to-do list, you know, a little bit longer than you care to admit. It is never too late to make the first step towards the life you want more than anything else. And if you haven't already, make sure you are subscribed to the show so that you never miss an episode. Thank you so much for tuning in. Until next time, keep becoming the woman of your wildest dreams.